0: Pray for Ben as he speaks, that that he speaks your words and that we can become a little bit more like you. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. Anybody else moderately nervous today? Nope, just me. Cool. So in 2015, Gallup released a poll, and it, it turns out that the former first lady, former secretary of state, current presidential candidate hopeful, Hillary Rodham Clinton, was nominated and, went, and or was, was voted the most admired woman in the United States for the 14th time in a row. She was voted most admired by Time Magazine the last 20 out of the last 23 years among the most admired women category, the only person to have won it that many times all the way back to the in, in beginning of the poll in 1948. Hillary Rodham Clinton is the Democratic presidential candidate hopeful, and she has kind of an interesting story. It started her, her kind of rise began in June of 1969. She was featured in Life magazine after she was elected speaker at her prestigious Wellesley College for graduation, and she spoke immediately after Senator Edward Brooke, who criticized the school and the students for the protests that they had been staging in 1969 over the Vietnam War and how un-American and unpatriotic they must have been, and Clinton became kind of famous in the 1969 sense of the word viral because her speech went viral in the magazine, which it took like a month and a half for everyone else to hear about it because there was no internet when she criticized President or Senator Brooke for criticizing protests, and it was this big thing, and she kind of got known from that. She became well-known when she graduated from Yale Law School in 1973. She graduated with honors, where she met her husband, William Jefferson Clinton. She was the first ever female member to serve on the governing board of Walmart Corporation. She was twice named by the National Law Journal as one of the 100 most powerful lawyers in America. As first lady, she, cha- she championed women's rights, the rights of children around the world. She even endured the scandal and stood by the side of her husband in the midst of his marriage and relationship with Monica Lewinsky. She is the first, form- first former first lady to hold elective office when she was elected senator of the state of New York in the year 2000. And she is one of only three females to have served in the role of secretary of state of the United States of America. So love her or hater, there is no doubt that Hillary Clinton is an educated, successful, and accomplished and admired woman. But the question that I have to ask is if she were here today and Jesus were sitting across the table from her, what would Jesus say to Hillary Clinton? What would he tell her? What would he ask her? How would that conversation go? And so what I did this week with the help of some friends who have done similar sermons and and kind of stolen some of their ideas is I came up with a few things that I think in the best of my ability, to the best of my knowledge, are some of the questions and things that Jesus would say to Hillary Clinton. Probably, undoubtedly, one of the first questions that he would ask is, can people trust you? It is no doubt that as admired as she is by many, she is vilified maybe by as many as, as a person. And one of the things that she is most vilified, vilified for is the lack of trust that people have in her. There are several incidents along the way that point to maybe she has a lack of trustworthiness. In the 2008 campaign, there was a story that ran that she said she was named after Sir Edmund Hillary, one of the first men to climb uh, Mount Everest. One of the first men to climb Mount Everest. And, and a little bit of fact-checking showed that she was actually born several years before he climbed Mount Everest when he was just, man, Edmer, Edmund Hillary, who no one knew anything about. And so it kind of caught in this lie. She said, well, maybe my mom, my mom had insinuated it. Maybe I had misunderstood. Maybe I had misheard. But it kind of showed a picture of, of one of the greatest flaws, perhaps, of Hillary Clinton. Is that time after time, there are stories that grow and, and, and sentences that happen that continue that eventually turn out to be untrue. Maybe you remember the time she talked about landing on on an airport tarmac under sniper fire. And it wasn't necessarily the case. But then things grew a little bit more tumultuous and a little bit more important. and And the fire started to grow as she became Secretary of State and the stakes grew much higher. And all of a sudden, errors and lies that used to just seem to be not that big a deal seem to have cost lives, and and, and errors and lies become crimes and these things. And and there's people who are disturbed by the trustworthiness of, of Hillary Clinton. I think this is probably where it all starts. And if you think about Hillary, you probably might think of one of her greatest flaws as this perception of her. I have to admit, I don't know her personally. The only things that I know about her are from the media's portrayal of her and the research that I can do into what I can see. So I don't know the heart of Hillary like Jesus would. But I believe he would ask her this question. I believe he would ask her this question because in January this year, she was on 60 Minutes, and the interviewer Scott Pelley said, in 76, Jimmy Carter famously said, I will not lie to you. And Clinton responded, well, I have to tell you, I have tried in every way I know how, literally from my years as a young lawyer all the way through my time as Secretary of State to level with the American people. And Pelley said, you talk about leveling with the American people, but have you always told the truth? And Clinton said, I've always tried to. Pelley said, some people are going to say you just gave yourself some wiggle room there. And Hillary responded, no, I've always tried and Pelley interrupts her and says, I mean, Jimmy Carter said, I will never lie to you. And Clinton says, well, but you know, you're asking me to say, have I ever? I don't believe I have. I don't, I don't believe I ever have. I don't believe I ever will. I'm going to do the best I can to level with the American people. And so immediately in, in, the, in the campaign and the life of Hillary Clinton, there seems to be a built-in mistrust. That comes. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said, Do not swear. When he was said, Do not swear, what he was saying is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is trustworthy. Right? So if he was sitting across from her today, he would say something similar to that. He says as much in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, through the through the words of the Apostle Paul, and he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put out All of the, let me start again, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with this practice. So why not lie? Well, Hillary, there's a very simple reason. People won't trust you when you do. But in the time that I have been alive and going back just a little bit further, it's not that hard to see that president isn't always the most trustworthy office in the land. You can go back to to some issues with President Reagan and the Iran-Contra scandal. You can go to issues with with her husband, President Clinton, and the issues that he had with, with affairs and all of those sorts of things. You can go back to President George W. Bush and invading a country and destabilizing an entire region based on limited evidence that may or may not have been presented in certain ways. You can talk about President Obama and his unwillingness to tell the truth about different issues that people fight about. You can see over time and time again that President isn't exactly the office where people Tend to tell the truth all the time. And so I think rather than pointing out all of the time she's refused to tell the truth, Jesus would probably want to know from Hillary if because of her past misgivings, if she's changed, if she's able to have the humility to admit when she's made a mistake, if she's able to say, "I was wrong, I'm sorry. Because I'll be honest, you can go all the way down to as many of the the third and fourth and fifth and sixth party tickets as you can. You won't find a presidential candidate who is perfect. They all have flaws, they all have misgivings, and some of them just are simply portrayed differently than others. The second thing that I think Jesus would say to Hillary is he would say, I want you to understand that every single soul matters to God. In the book of James, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, God makes this promise to Jeremiah. He says, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you before you were born, I consecrated you." And so immediately when you hear that Jesus would say every single soul matters to God, your first thought is probably to think pro-life. And we've talked before about our stance on abortion as a church and about how it's not an issue that we talk about often because we want the mother to know that we love her and Jesus died for her as much as we want her to know how much we value her unborn baby. But I want you to know that any death grieves the heart of God. And so when we talk about Jesus caring about every single soul, we're not just talking about unborn babies. We're talking about born babies and children who are walking on the earth. And that God doesn't just value them until they're born and then throw them to the wolves. That God's plan and God's desire is that each of them is cared for. And so Jesus would start to ask. He'd say, okay, so we get to the, the baby's birth. How, tell me about how you're going to change the foster care system in your country. Tell me about how you're going to make sure that children are adopted into loving homes. Tell me how you're going to make sure that these children are fed and cared for. Tell me how you are going to value those little souls and make sure that they grow up in communities who raise them, who love them, who teach them the right way. But I want to make one other thing clear. God doesn't value souls who live here more than he values souls who live in a different country. And so he wouldn't only talk to her about abortion and foster care, he'd probably have some questions for her about drone strikes. And how sometimes innocent civilians can get thrown in and casualties in the midst of something else. And he would say, I want you to know that that grieves my heart as much as that grieves my heart. That war and famine and poverty and all of those things that you might allow in your presidency grieve me as much as these other things. Because every single soul matters to God. And he wouldn't stop with children he would say, I want you to know that the thousands and thousands and millions of people who are incarcerated today, some of them unjustly, some of them because of laws that your president, or that your husband signed into law as a president, have incarcerated an entire generation of men, and I want to know what you're going to do to change that. I want to know what you're going to do to make this a different place. And he wouldn't stop until he got to the elderly, and he said, I want to know how you're going to care for the elderly. Because every single soul matters from before they are born until, they're, until they are with him in heaven. So he's going to say, how are you going to let people honor their father and mother? How are you going to care for their health and their aging in their twilight years? How are you going to do that? And so he'd say, I, I care for all of you. I care for every soul. Towards the top of the list, I'm not sure where it fits. But somewhere near the top of the list, I believe Jesus would say, I want to apologize to you, Hillary, for some of my followers. Because there are some people in the name of Jesus who have said and done terrible things to both presidential candidates, to all presidential candidates. And there are people who have misrepresented the name of Christ because their only goal is political gain. And so there are people who have used the kingdom of God for their own power. And I think that he would apologize for the vitriol of the things they have said about her, the negative energy, the gossip, and the slander they've continued to throw at her over the years. And I think that he would say that because she has made mistakes. Hers are just in the limelight. Luckily, only a few people know about ours, don't they? But I also think that he would say, you claim to be a follower of me, then you need to know my priorities. And Jesus would tell her he'd say you can follow me but you need to think of what I think of as important. We talked for the last four weeks in a political Jesus about how what's most important to Jesus is the kingdom, right? And what's most important to Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. What's most important to Jesus is not political power, is not political gain, but it's bringing heaven to earth. So when he tells Hillary in this moment, he says your priorities need to be the same as mine. He says the first priority after the kingdom of God is to protect the poor and the vulnerable. Protect the poor and vulnerable, those who cannot care for themselves. I don't know if you guys saw this picture this summer, but um, a boy named Landon Cunningham was taken to a baseball game by his father for his birthday, and they're celebrating his ninth birthday, and he was looking down at his phone in the middle of the game, and the the batter for the Pittsburgh Pirate, Danny Ortiz, lost control of his bat, and it went flying through the air, and in, in the moment of instinct, his, his dad, Sean Cunningham, reached his hand out and hit the bat away to protect his son and certainly would have injured him, if not harmed him very greatly. And they asked about him later, Sean Livingston said, I just simply went into dad mode. I protected my son. And this is what Jesus does, and this is what he calls his followers to do, is to protect the people who are incapable of protecting themselves. To protect the people who who are weak and vulnerable, to protect those who can't care for themselves. But I want to make this part of this very clear. He also calls, and a priority for Jesus is to empower people to take responsibility for their own lives. One of the most dehumanizing things we can do for people in other countries and in our own country is to continually give them free stuff. And I believe that Jesus would have this conversation with Hillary about how this works. You see, even if you look through the life of Jesus time and time again when he helped people over and over again, it wasn't a handout. Jesus was continually giving a hand up. His goal wasn't to continue to teach them to rely on him for their physical needs, but it was to change them in a way that they could then take care of themselves and take responsibility for their own lives. The term for this is community development. It's something we're working on as a church. It kind of seems like a juxtaposition, doesn't it? Because we're talking about not giving away free things, and over the past month we collected 500 jars of peanut butter and jelly to give out in our community, right? Right? So it sounds like we're hypocrites, but do you know, and I waited until today to reveal this to you, do you know why we specifically pick jars of peanut butter and jelly? Most of the ministries that we work with give out food on a regular basis. But what they do is they only do it on certain days. For instance, Shepherd's House does it the first Tuesday of the month. But then what happens on occasion is someone will come to them because they've come on hard times or someone will come to them because things, you know, because of a disaster or any kind of number of things and they'll come to them in the middle of the month or towards the end of the month and say, I, I need help just a couple days to get through until the next paycheck, just a couple days to get through until my first paycheck, whatever it is. And what do they give those people in the meantime? Peanut butter and jelly. They have the big food give out. They have the things that they give away to the people who, who are regularly in need But the point of peanut butter and jelly isn't a handout; it's a hand up. Peanut butter and jelly spread far, it lasts for a while. It's one of those things that in that moment it says, this will help you get to where you need to get to. It's one of the reasons that internationally we work with back-to-back missions. Back-to-back missions was started by Beth Guckenberger in, in Monterrey, Mexico, and she started it when she realized there were orphanages already in Monterrey, Mexico in spite of the, the poor orphan care system in Mexico. And so she decided rather than starting a new orphanage, what we were going to do is work with the, the, the orphanages that were already run by native Mexicans, that were already working, and instead of taking over and trying to show them everything they were doing wrong, we would come and work back to back with them and support them in, ways, in every way that we can. And so it wasn't as if she came in like the white savior saying, we'll show you how to do it. She came in and said, how can we help? How can we support this system? This is the difference between a handout and a handout. The third priority of Jesus and followers of Jesus is understanding the difference between peacemaking and Peacekeeping. Peacemaking is, if you're a sports fan, and I know some of you are because you keep checking the score of the Bengals game right now, if you're a sports fan, you understand this analogy, but Jesus doesn't punt issues. He doesn't just kick them down the road and think we can deal with those later. Instead, Jesus deals with issues head on. A peacemaker punts an issue and hopes that mm, maybe at some point we can work on that. A peacekeeper deals with an issue and fixes the problem. A prime example of peacemakers are politicians. Any politician of any branch has one job and one job only. Does anybody know that job? Just shout it out. I take that back. They have one goal and one goal only. Does anybody know that goal? Get reelected. Their only job is to keep enough people happy to get 51% of the vote the next time they run two, four, or six years down the road. They are always peace, almost always peacemakers. They just want to keep enough people happy to keep getting reelected for a prime example is in 1776 when the founding fathers built the Constitution, there's a, 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 an article written into the Constitution that says, we'll deal with the issue of slavery in 20 years. Like, they knew it was going to be a problem. They knew it was going to be something that mattered. And they said, let's talk about it later. Let's keep the peace right now. <laughs> this is a prime example of the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. The fourth thing I think that that is a priority of Jesus is that Christians advocate. And I want you to know very clearly that there is a difference between advocating and pontificating. Pontificating is talking about, pontificating is the term that a lot of people use called slacktivism. You'll notice slacktivism if you turn on the NFL later today and there's people wearing pink wristbands. Because 1% 1 of the prophets go towards... Breast cancer research and the rest of it goes to line the pockets of the people who think they're advocating but are really just slacktivating for people. Slacktivism is, is changing your profile picture to raise awareness or changing your profile picture for some reason or another on a social media site to act like you're doing something. Advocating, which is something I don't do enough because I accidentally slacktivate too much, but advocating is actually fighting for someone. Advocating is doing something in the meantime. He doesn't know I'm going to say this, but it's okay. I'll embarrass him. David Horde and our Cancer Fighters United ministry advocate for cancer patients time and time again. They fight for them whenever they need it. They fight when they can. They help in every which way they can to anyone in the area who has cancer. They fight for the people who have cancer to get what they need and to do what they need to be able to do. That's advocating. And that's what a Christian does, is fights for those who can't fight for themselves. There's a reason that Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36, that his kingdom is not of this world. And it's not because he doesn't believe the government can do good, it's because there's much bigger fish to fry. So what do we do, right? Like, so these are the things that Hillary needs to know. What does that mean for you? She's not listening. Last I checked, I doubt anybody in D.C. is listening to our podcast. Maybe they are. If you are, hey, um what does this mean for us though? I think it shows us there's three very important things we need to know as Christians when it comes to elections. The first thing we need to know is that what is, so the question we have to ask is, what is my role as a Christian in politics? And the first thing we need to know is that Christians obey and respect their leaders. Hear that again. Christians obey and respect their leaders. Peter writes in the book of 1 Peter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to an emperor or a supreme, or to governors as part, as, I am just turn around, it's easier, or governors as sent by him, and punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now you have to know that Peter is writing this about an emperor who is killing Christians left and right. Peter is writing this about an emperor who was not democratically elected, who made no campaign promises, who just rose to power and made life miserable for everyone around him. And what does Peter say? Their response is honor and respect the emperor. And so for us, honor and respect the president. The second thing we can do is pray for our leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy says, I urge you first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's hard to hate someone. It's hard to slander someone. It's hard to wish them ill when you're constantly, consistently praying that God would bless them. And I know that that sounds difficult because you hate their policy and you hate this and you think that is wrong, but what God is calling us to do is to pray for our leaders, even the ones we disagree with. The early church didn't encourage Christians to do anything beyond respect and obey because they didn't have a choice. There were no elections, there were no campaigns, there were no signs, they all just simply lived under Roman rule and said, you just do what you can and get by. We're more worried about the kingdom than we are about politics. But if they live today under a participatory form of government by the people and for the people, I think they would have found some solace in this verse. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what Jesus would say to you is that the world needs our influence. And I want you to hear this next line very importantly. In 1776, 17% of the country considered themselves a follower of Christ. There is a notion that there was a time when America was a Christian nation, but it was never the heart of God, it was never the desire of God that he create nations of, uh, of theocracy. He never wanted to instill power from the top down. He always wants influence to come from the bottom up. And so when we talk about influence, when we talk about difference, when we talk about salt and light, we're not talking about changing laws as much as we're talking about changing our neighbor. The third thing, though, that I think Jesus would tell you, and I think he would do this, I think Christians should vote. I think if Jesus were here today living in America, he would render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But I don't think that Jesus would hold to one political party. I don't think he's a straight ticket voter on either side of any issue because I think there are things on both main party candidates and both, and both major political parties that grieve his heart and aren't the things he's looking for. In fact, even Chuck Colson would tell you this. Chuck Colson went to jail because he was a Republican, if you remember the Watergate scandal in the 70s. Chuck Colson was a dyed-in-the-wool, die-hard Republican, but he became a Christian in jail after Watergate, and he came out of prison and said this. He said, Christians should never have a political party. It is a huge mistake to become married to an ideology because the greatest enemy of the gospel is ideology. Ideology is a man-made format of how the world ought to work, And Christians instead believe in the revealing truth of Scripture. And so I encourage you next Tuesday to go and vote. Feel free to write my name in for anything you want. But I encourage you to vote. I encourage you to be active in the things that you think are important to you and the things that you think are important to the kingdom of God. But more than any of that, I challenge, I beg, I implore you to remember that Christians cannot and don't get distracted or sidetracked from the real mission. The real mission of the kingdom of God isn't political power. The real mission of the kingdom of God isn't campaign promises. The real mission of the kingdom of God is the love of Jesus. And so in spite of everything else that surrounds it, in spite of the division and the vitriol and all of the anger and the angst that comes with it, the real mission of the kingdom of God is love. And that was embodied when God sent Jesus to this earth. And he sent Jesus to this earth for a very specific purpose, and that purpose was love. That purpose was love to the point where he was willing to die for that love. That purpose was love for the point where he was willing to be beaten, to be whipped, to be scourged, and be hung on a cross for his love for you and for me, for his love for Hillary and his love for Donald, for his love for Gary Johnson and his love for Jill Stein, for his love for Evan McMullen and his love for Mickey Mouse. Jesus came to love all of us. And he showed it on the cross. So here in these next few moments, I, I, I want to challenge you as the bread and the cup come to you and the bread represents his body broken for you. Instead, what I want you to think when you take that bite of that bread isn't this is my body broken for you. I want you to think about who you're voting for next Tuesday and then think of the opposite person and think this is his body broken for fill in the blank. And as as you take the cup and you start to drink of the cup and you think this is my blood poured out for you, instead of thinking this is my blood poured out for you, think this is my blood poured out for that person who I don't care for, that person who I think will ruin the country, that person who I think I would never vote for. Take these moments and remember that Jesus died not only for you, but for your enemy, not only for you, but for your opposition. With with offering. And I can say this every week, and we can and we can think that it's getting repetitive, but I think every seven days we need a reminder again that everything that we do is, is a reflection of our heart, no matter what it is. And and giving and offering is no different than singing or learning or hearing or, or helping others. It's an act of worship and it's a reflection of our heart to people around us. And so just remember that as we're continuing today, that not just offering, not just worship, but what we're going to do this afternoon, what we we'll do on Wednesday, is also a reflection of our heart. So will you stand and continue worship.